0: Welcome this morning to Systematic Theology. Let's begin this morning with prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this class, this time to study your word, this hour of just looking at you, who you are, God. We often try to make you in our own image, but your scripture, your, your Bible, your word reveals who you are. And we are to study that. We are to study you and know you and believe what we read here in scripture. And help us, Lord. To love you all the more because of it. Help us to grow in our love and our knowledge and let that feed over into our life so that we might live a righteous life, a holy life before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were on the drive up here this morning in the family van and someone wanted to, one of the kids wanted to listen to Christian music. So we turned on, was it Caleb? Whatever. Caleb, one of those stations. And there was a song about I love you all that I can or something. I could not love you more, God. And I thought, no way. I mean, that's saying that we're perfect in our love to God. And we cannot, we cannot even reach that at all. We we should strive to do that. We should learn more about God so we can love him more. But I don't know that we'll, we won't. We will not ever love God all that we should or can in this life. Every second of the day, all for his name's sake, all for his glory. There's room to grow for all of us, even if you've been a Christian a while and you need to grow even more. So that's what we're doing with this class, especially on the doctrine of God as we're learning about God and most recently looking at his names. So the doctrine of God in theology is called Theology Proper. And in Theology Proper, we're talking about the existence of God. We're looking at the attributes of God. We're looking at the names of God, and the Trinity, and the decrees of God, and creation, and providence. So those are the big doctrines that we're studying. And we didn't quite finish with the names of God last week. We did cover Yahweh and the the compounds that go along with with Yahweh. These were fun to look at. And we we covered a few of these, El being the general word for God. So Yahweh is the covenant name. Yahweh is the name that he gave to his people Israel to call him. It is his most personal name, if you wanted to think of it that way. Whereas El is a general word for God. So this is more of the, God's not really in a classification, but in the ancient world, they thought of the gods. That's a, a thing, a type of thing or a type of person is a god. And we know that God is not like all these false gods. But in the ancient world, they had a term for the being that they worship. And that was El in Hebrew. And other languages sounded very familiar as well. And this focuses on God's power, His might, His strength. And when it comes to the true God, often in Hebrew, the true God, you know often because it says the God. Or Ha'el in Hebrew. The God. Not just God, but the God. Not every single time, but usually it's with the article in Hebrew. And it's uh, found with adjectives often. The faithful God. The eternal God. The living God. So in your English Bibles, that's when you just see God, G-O-D, for God. Other titles and names of God are pretty straightforward, except for Yahweh, most translations capitalize L-O-R-D, all caps. But as I said, that's a little bit different Hebrew word. That's Adonai, so it's better just to translate it as Yahweh. We looked at Eloah. Eloah is the derivative of El. It's often used in poetry and Job, Psalms, so really... Somebody said Psalms, but Job is, is more often used here. And probably because of some kind of way that it sounds or matches with other words, or it's just a more, more poetic name for God. It can be in non-poetical books, but these are often songs or prophecies in other books. So we looked at some of those last week. Then we came to Elohim. So Elohim, anytime you add im in Hebrew, you're talking about something plural. So they're singular and there's plural. So the Anakim, you have Anak, that's one, and Anakim is more than one. So El is one. Elohim is the plural. So literally, it means gods. But we don't translate it like this all the time, and you'll see why. When it's speaking of other gods, 63 times in the Old Testament, that's how it's translated in your Bibles. It means the gods of the ancient world. So whoever is being discussed there, Elohim means gods. But 11 times, It speaks of the God, Yahweh. So God uses the plural for gods to speak of himself, especially in the very early parts of the Bible. And so the question becomes, why? Let's look at one of these, Deuteronomy 5.26. Have a look at Deuteronomy 5.26 and you can see here, in English you might not notice it because it's been translated for us, but it does come up. And we're asking, why? Why is God doing this? And it's, it's debated why he uses this. But for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living Elohim? God, speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. So it's clear there that this is Yahweh. The midst of the fire is, is the burning bush. The midst of the fire is the, the one true God here that spoke to Moses in Exodus 3. And so there's no question that's Yahweh, and he's using the plural of Elohim to speak of himself. Joshua 24, 19, we just looked at not too long ago in our Bible studies on Wednesday. But this is again using three here, three different titles, names of God. Joshua twenty four nineteen. Look how Joshua says to the people You will not be able to serve Yahweh. So they say, oh yeah, we'll serve God. We love God. We're, we're going to be awesome. You know, We're going to do exactly what God says. And he says, actually, you will not be able to serve Yahweh. So that's the covenant name for God. For he is a holy God. That's Elohim. He is a jealous God. That's just El, the singular. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And then he goes on, Joshua does, to say this is in the context of how they're going to turn away from God. And they're going to forsake God. Yahweh and serve foreign gods. So we're already seeing just with those two verses a little bit of the context of Elohim being used to contrast with the rest of the world, with all flesh, with the other gods. And so what does it mean? Well, it's not a proof of the tr- Trinity. A lot of people, they first learn of Elohim, and you'll find this all over the internet. It proves the Trinity because Elohim is plural. The Trinity is three persons, one God. So therefore, that's a proof of the Trinity. Well, it's not, first of all, because Elohim is more than one God, and when, when that's used for the plural gods of the ancient world. So, there's not three gods in the Trinity, is there? One God. Trinitarian doctrine, which we'll come to in a few weeks. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, it's not a proof of the Trinity. People, the reason people say it is, and they really like it, because it shows up right here, and Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so on. So Elohim there at the beginning of verse 26. And then it says our image. Now, our, you could maybe use as an argument in the big scheme of things for the Trinity because our is, is plural, a plural pronoun. But Elohim is not a good argument to use for the Trinity. And what about the other 63 times it's used to speak of false gods? So let's not uh, use things we don't need to prove the Trinity. We have plenty of verses to prove that. So what is it? Probably it's the plural of intensity, fullness, richness, the God of all gods, the God above all gods, the God over anything man can come up with is the idea. In comparison to man, or the creation, or false gods, God is the fullness of God. There is no comparison to Him. I I like to think of it as when Elohim is used, the idea here is that He is God and He blots out, He wipes out, He removes from the chalkboard all other comparisons. It's a plural of intensity. Kind of like the, the, the plural we, the royal we. You know, the queen says we, or when it was the queen. We pronounce such and such. Well, it's just her, right? Why was she pronouncing all of these things in the plural? And I used to have a friend a long time ago. He always talked in the we. And I thought he was talking about his wife and his family. And he says, you know, we're coming over. And so we got the house ready for the family to come over. And it was just him coming over. And so it was kind of strange. You just got used to that. And he would say we for himself. I guess he was royalty. The royal We. Sometimes it's used the false single gods. So Elohim sometimes can be used for named gods in certain historical texts in the Bible like Dagon, Milcom, Baal. So uh, just have to be careful in how we think about this. It's a title. Again, it's not a name. The word God is a title. His name is Yahweh. Most of the rest of these are titles. They become like his name because we use them so often. And so God can be used, the word God can be used to describe false gods. Or the one true God. So context. Context is so key. You've probably heard that around here. Context, context, context. Who are we talking about here? What's under discussion? And even in the Psalms, you have this idea of you are gods. And Jesus uses that. And so there the idea is more of you're a judge. You're, you're in the sense of a, a ruler. A god's being used to describe the rulers in ancient Israel. You can add some compounds to El and Elohim. You've probably heard of El Shaddai. Shaddai is Almighty. So this is God Almighty. And I think sometimes if we add the word one to it, we get the the sense a bit more. It's God, the God, the Almighty One. The Almighty God. Not, Not the gods of the ancient world that people worship, but the one true God who is the mightiest God. If you could use that comparison. El Elyon. Elyon has to do with most high. So El Elyon is God most high. I believe in in Genesis. This is the God that Melchizedek says he worships. God most high. El Elohe Olam. Everlasting God. So El Elam Olam. Olam means everlasting. Or Elohe is just a different ending on the word there. Before Olam for El. So Remember, the ancient peoples knew there was a true God. And if they were going to call upon Israel's God or even refer to Israel's God, they would often use El because it's the word for God. Yahweh is a more personal covenant name. Not everyone knew Yahweh's name. Some, some Gentiles did, and, and they, not as a saving God, but they knew of God and they spoke of the God of Israel in the name Yahweh. Uh, here's a combination, El or Elohim, Kayim. Kayim, Im being plural or Kai. This refers to the living God. Kai being life. So it's, this is the God that's living, not the God that falls over. You know, is it Dagon who falls over and his arms and head falls off? You know, he's a, he's a dead God. This is the living God. And Jesus makes a, a, lot, a lot out of this in the New Testament. God is the God of the living that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with God now because he's the God of the living. He's the living God over people who live forever with him, like Abraham, who's in heaven with God at the time Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Okay, what are some other names and titles, maybe not used quite as often, but they do come up with, they do come up in the Old Testament. Adon or Adonai. This is translated Lord, and that's correct because it's a recognition of, Superiority or master is kind of the idea. The the one who controls all things, the one who rules over things, the master of the slaves or servants. Tsur, Tsur is rock. God is often called a rock, having to do with his strength, how reliable he is, how we should run to him whenever we're in trouble and we need protection. Ab, we get later Abraham, Abraham. Ab means father. So this was a Hebrew word, but it gets applied to God, not in the same sense that we see in the New Testament with the Trinitarian theology, but this is with the one who created Israel, the nation. This is the father of Israel, that's of. So they take a common Hebrew word for father and they describe him now as the one who fathered Israel, the nation. In the New Testament, the word father will take on even more meaning when it comes to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, don't, don't make the argument, oh, there's Father there. That's proof of the Trinity. The Trinity's not fully revealed until the New Testament. Yes, there are hints like in Genesis 1, our image, our likeness. God's not talking about the angels there. When I first read the Bible as a new Christian, I thought, oh, that's neat. Be made, we are made in the image of God and the angels. No, the our in Genesis 1 and 2 is God speaking of himself. So that's a good argument for the Trinity. Uh, But we need the New Testament to have the full revelation of the Trinity. Any questions on the names of God? You learned some Hebrew words, some Hebrew letters. and go home and use God's name in Hebrew now. Let's talk about God's attributes or perfections. We'll be on this topic for some weeks. There's a lot to cover with the attributes. You need to study God's attributes. You need to learn what God has said about himself. Because this teaches us who God is. This teaches us who the God that saved us, the God we worship, truly is. And that helps us to know Him, to live accordingly. Uh, I had a seminary professor who went for a walk every morning. He would pray through one of the attributes of God. And he would, he would try to recall all the Bible verses dealing with that attribute. And he did that in a rotation every 14 or 16 weeks. So the attributes, also called the perfections. The famous A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it sounds like not that profound of a statement, but when you think about what he's saying here, when you think about your image of God, do you want the right image of God in your, in your concept, in your mind? Do you want the right thoughts of God? Or do you want to just create God however you would like? Has anyone ever heard You know, that's not the God I worship. Or the God that I worship would never do that. Or my God is a God of love. Usually in in reference to somebody's sin. You know, my God is a God of love. Or some people will say there's no hell, there's no wrath, there's no eternal punishment because my God is such and such. We don't care about what your God is. We care about the God of Scripture. If your God is the God of Scripture, then we care But if not, we need to tell you who the true God is. In modern American Christians, it shouldn't surprise you, but it might, that people make up God in their own image. People make up God in their own image. And the most common concept of God today is this idea of whatever we want God to be. Typically, we pick a few attributes we really like, and that's our God. And the other attributes, well, as for those fire and brimstone churches... Who preach the Bible. What is an attribute? It's perfection. I like the word excellencies. Perfection is good too. More commonly attributes is used. But excellencies is a great idea here. It is God's excellencies. Those excellent things about him. That make him God. It's who he is. Also you could use the word characteristics. It's a little more bland. Virtues. Although that's not the best word. But it it does get at the point. Uh, Usually... Virtues are used to describe the good moral attributes. Some of, some of God's attributes, though, aren't so much virtues in the sense of good moral things. It's just who He is. Uh, the essential characteristics of His nature. And when we study these, if you come across one you don't like, God's justice. Or maybe you wouldn't say you don't like it, but it, it rubs you the wrong way. God's righteousness. You can't take one of those attributes out and he still be God. This is who God is. We can't take them out. Now, some people will classify them differently and combine them together. So some will have, you know, 16 attributes, and others will have 20, and others will have 25 or whatever. It depends on how you slice and dice it. Is mercy and grace two separate things? Is mercy and grace the same? Is truth and faithfulness two separate things when it comes to attributes are the same? The point is, you cannot remove who God is, and he still be God. It's impossible to even do that. But in your own mind, think about that. You cannot take out one of these attributes. It does not work like that. Here's what Francis Turretin in the 1700s said. He said, "...the divine attributes are the essential properties by which he, God, makes himself known to us. And he makes himself known to us because we're weak, and those by which he is distinguished from creatures." So God is revealing himself to us. God is teaching us who he is through these attributes. We would uh, be very unwise to not study these. Even if you weren't taking this class. Just reading through scripture is going to help you get to know who God is by studying these. Here's Steve Lawson. He did a, a course on this for Ligonier on the attributes of God. He says, As our knowledge of God goes, so goes the direction of our lives. A high view of God will lead us to lofty worship of Him. A growing understanding of His character will lead to holy and righteous living and the pursuit of His will. Conversely, a low view of God will lead to diminished praise of Him. Inevitably, base views of Him will lead to low and empty living. So it's a chain reaction. You have high views of God. You have lofty views of God because you've read the scriptures and studied God. Then your worship is higher. Your your worship means more because you're in a worshipful relationship with God, but if you have low views of God, you don't really understand who God is, you have wrong views of God, then you don't care as much about worshiping him rightly. You don't care as much about what God thinks or what God would want you to do. It's more about man. So you'll see this in churches. You have churches who have a high view of God and a low biblical view of man, right? We don't like to say low, but we say biblical view on our website, right? But it's, it's a, a lower than commonly held today view of man because the Bible says we're sinners. Other churches will have a high view of man and a lower view of God. And that's seen in what they believe, in their doctrine, and in their worship. So as we study the attributes of God, what importance does this have for us? Hopefully I've already made the case, right? You need to know your God better so you can worship him. But what importance does this have? Sometimes in theology and in sermons, rightly so, we ask, okay, so what? So what? That's great. That sounds so nerdy and wonderful. Big theology books, you know. Pastor, we're reading this huge book here, a thousand pages. So what? Well, the book does a good job of bringing application. But I want us to consider just a few applications to start with. God's attributes are diamonds and rubies, and the treasure chest of the Holy Scriptures. So this comes from Biki and Smalley. Some of our men are reading this in our men's leadership class here that we had yesterday. And this is one volume here just covering Revelation and the doctrine of God. So these are diamonds. When you look at the Scriptures, you know, there's some verses that are, of course, the Word of God. But there's not as much built into that word or verse as God didn't intend it to be. You know, you're, you're reading the genealogies and those are important in First Chronicles, right? And you get eight chapters into First Chronicles and you can zoom out and see the big picture. It's important. But when you get to the attributes of God in one verse, your mind can be blown because you realize, oh, I had a wrong conception of God. I had a wrong view of God's grace. I had a wrong view of God's mercy or justice. And so these are the diamonds, the rubies. And we want to take them out and we want to examine them when we study the attributes of God, and, and turn them around and, and see how they reflect through the light here, like you did when you bought your, you know, men, when you bought your wife a ring. Hopefully you examined it, made sure it was real, unless you were intending to buy a fake one. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, meditate on God's attributes. Meditate. Think about these things. Meditation in the Christian life is not, you know, uh, cross your legs, put your hands out and say, "Om." That's Eastern meditation. That's Eastern religion. Meditation in the Christian life is to think about something, take it into your mind, not to empty your mind, but take things into your mind from Scripture and turn them over in your mind and think about them and examine them. Instead of just reading the Bible and reading the Bible, which is great, you stop and you think about it for a second. You You've probably had those moments just naturally. But Meditation is more focused now on what does this verse mean and how does it fit in the context here and how does this apply to my life? And how can I pray about this thing that I just learned? How can I take God's attributes and pray about them? He says the attributes of God are various beams by which the divine nature shines forth to us. Like the sun, which is out there and would would burn us completely if we got too close. By the time these beams get to earth, we can take them into our skin and it's good for us and it's healthy. God is shining these beams to us of his nature and and showing us who he is. Study of God's attributes is not dry as dust theology, but it is practical. That is, it leads to righteousness, said one theologian, Gordon Clark. This is not dry theology. It it may sound dry to you. That's probably, you know, the the speaker who's doing that. Uh, But God is not dry. God is not boring. God is uh, consuming fire. He's a radiance. He, he's the, the brightest light. You know, he would blind you if you could see him. He would wipe you out if you could truly see his glory. So this is real. This is the kind of thing that if you were Paul falling down on the road to Damascus being blinded, I'm sure Paul had chills, you know, goosebumps, as we call them. I'm sure it truly affected his whole countenance, his body, his soul. And that's the way the study of God should be. It can seem dry because there's going to be some things we get into that are really hard for us to get our minds around. In fact, I'll I'll talk about this in a minute, but a lot of the things we know about God is just what God is not. He's not like us. Does that statement say what God really is like though? We just know what he's not. He's not like us. Yes, we can narrow it down, but often we're just kind of drawing a box and saying, okay, God's not like these things outside the box he is whatever inside the box so there's different ways you can categorize these attributes if you're if you're at home and you've got to, let's say some books some of us have books some of us have too many books how are you going to organize those books on your bookshelf well you can organize them by author's last name and that's really going to be hard if, if for me, for example if i'm studying the doctrine of god now i've got to remember okay who who wrote that book let me look author's name by alphabetical order. It takes forever. I'm not good at that. Or you could organize them by category. The doctrine of God's on this shelf. Doctrine of Christ on this shelf. New Testament commentaries over here. Old Testament commentaries over there. Or you could organize them by the the Dewey Decimal System. Is that right? Dewey Decimal System. And some people do that. They get so many books that they organize them by that method. And you know, 8.5.6 is over here and so on. So there are different ways to organize things. And that's what we're asking with this question here. How is it best to categorize the attributes of God? Is there any way to divide them up as we study them? And theologians have said, yes, it's difficult, but we can do that. Some have said the positive and the negative is the best way. Now, this is not positive as in there's some good things about God and there's some bad things about God. That's often what we think when we think of negative. No, the positive is what's called immanence. the the, the things that describe God explicitly, they, they say exactly who God is. And others that are by way of negation, what God is not. So the positive would be saying what he is, and the negative would be saying what he's not. So positive would be goodness, holiness, righteousness. Those are attributes of God that describe something about God. And then the negative by way of negation, independence. What is independence? Well, it means he's not dependent. So, not is a negation. And this was very common in the Middle Ages. This was a good start. You know, they're trying to think about the different ways that these attributes can be categorized. So, independence means you're not dependent on someone else. Infinite. Now, we get used to these words in English and don't think about it. But what does infinite mean? Not finite. We're finite. God is infinite. In both time and space. We'll study these doctrines in the coming weeks. Immutable. In English, I-N can mean not, or I am at the beginning of the word can mean not as well. So M, mutable. He's not mutable. He doesn't change. You can't change God. God's not changing. God's not learning. God's not growing. God is not suffering with us. God is not changing his mind at the last minute to enact plan B or C or D. God is not computing like a computer all the possible ways to get you to do something. And then putting that in front of you so you'll do what he wants. God is not mutable. So there's one way to describe the attributes and categorize them. Saying the positive ones and putting the negative ones together. Another way is natural and moral. Natural and moral. Natural here speaking of his nature. And moral speaking of his actions. So moral is right and wrong. And, And our common language. And natural, typically we think of natural as nature, but even the word nature goes back to essence or being. So God's natural attributes would be those that speak of God's essence or his constitution. I would say what he's made up of, but that would be wrong. We'll learn that when speaking about God. When we think of our constitution, right, we think of what we're made up of. What what constitutes a person? Or maybe when it comes to health, we have a strong constitution. Speaking of our, our immune system, this is God's nature itself. So, independence, infinity, simplicity, spirituality. These don't necessarily speak of the righteousness or the goodness of God, his moral attributes. These just speak of his nature. What is God's being? What is God's essence? Well, we can say these things about it the moral would be God's will. God's goodness. He he shows us what goodness is and he relates to us his goodness and he tells us the standard of his goodness and righteousness. God's truth. God desires to give us truth. God is truth. He reveals truth to us. His love. His holiness. Now all of these ways of categorizing have weaknesses. And I won't go through them. You can look at the book Or you can go back to Pastor Frank's class a few years ago. How how many years ago was that? When you did the Attributes of God study? Two years ago? I think it was in the old building, right? Two or three years ago? Yeah, he has beautiful slides. with. I have a few images of space, but he has awesome 4K, it looks like, images of space. And he goes through each of these and covers the the negatives and, and positives of each. But there are weaknesses, right? Because... Some of these might fit both categories. That's often a weakness here, as some of these might fit both categories. Simplicity, as we studied it with the men yesterday, can have an effect on worship. And and spirituality, God is spirit. Well, that affects how we worship him. Because we worship him, Jesus said, in spirit and truth. We don't worship him with with smells and bells. We don't worship him with, with bringing a sacrifice to the altar today. So that's also morality because it how we worship is a, is a good thing. It's a moral thing. You can also divide these with absolute and relative groups. Absolute and relative. So absolute, again, speaking of God's essence in and of itself. Who God is. Who God is. Who his being. It sounds weird, but who his being is. What his being is would probably be more accurate English, but... We have to be careful how we even ask the question. God's essence in and of itself. So he's self-existent. No one causes God to exist. No one feeds God. No one, God doesn't need to eat to live. His infinity, his spirituality. Again, speaking of his nature, his essence. Relative are the things that relate in comparison to his creation. So we have... Uh, some knowledge, but God has complete, full knowledge. He's omniscient. We have some power, but God has all power. These are his omnis, they're called. Omniscience, omnipotence, and yeah, I should have another one there. What's the other one? Omnipresent. That, that should be one of those. There should be two omniscience. Omniscient, omnipotence, omnipresence. That's probably what I meant on the last one there. So this is how he relates to his creation. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. And so that's relating to his creation. But those also speak of who God is in his essence. So this is why these categories have weaknesses here. And his, his infinity has a relation to his creation as well, especially when we get into the idea of time. God's outside of time, but he still does things in time and relates to time in a certain way. Not in his essence, but in his actions. So again, weaknesses here. Another way theologians have categorized God's attributes is immanent versus "eminent." Sounds very similar, doesn't it? So you probably don't go around using this terminology. But you have used the word immigrant, haven't you? What's an immigrant? Somebody who comes into a nation. And what's an immigrant or a migrant? Someone who goes out of a nation. So immigrant is speaking of his attributes within himself. Imminent, his outward actions towards others. So imminent in God, his immensity, his eternity, his simplicity. And as you can see, a lot of these are dividing down the category of, are we speaking of God's nature or God's uh, actions, even though All of these are God's nature. It's hard for us to see how immensity is in action. Imminent with an E produces things out from God. Omnipotence, goodness, justice. So that's one way to think of it. I think there's obviously there's weaknesses here. If you read the book, there's a lot of different ways to categorize this. Another weakness is who uses those words today? Only theologians who were really nerdy theologians. And to say that That God's attributes are just looked at as producing something. It is looking at the final product and not the nature of God, which is what the study is about. Okay, so are you stretching your mind yet this morning? We're going to stretch it even more as we go through the different attributes. Some are just really hard to think about. And a lot of this feels abstract. It's not completely abstract, but we are trying to just think about God. How do we think about God? How do we organize? That's what theology does. How do we organize the verses in the Bible that speak about God? We're not trying to dissect God. We're trying to take the verses that he's given us and now put those together in a theological fashion and learn about God. When he doesn't speak of himself, well, we don't even know. So we can't try to dissect him in that way. This is the best way, I think. It's the easiest for us to understand. It still has weaknesses, but the communicable and... In communicable attributes. Communicable. If you have a communicable disease, what is that? You can spread it to somebody else, right? Communicable, communicable diseases, we learned a lot about three years ago, didn't we? You can, you can spread those to other people. Incommunicable are not being spread. That's a, a disease that you have that's not being spread. That's one way we use these terms today in, in medicine. But when it comes to the attributes of God, communicable are the ones that we have as God has, but not at the same level. So we have power. God is all powerful. We have knowledge. God knows everything. So there's some relationship there. Incommunicable, as you can imagine, of those things that we do not have at all that God has. So unique to God. They're unique to God. Only God has these attributes. Only God is Simple. He's one. He's, he's unified. There's no parts in God. There's parts in us. First of all, we have a, a soul and a body. That's two parts right there. And then when it comes to the body, we got a lot of different parts, don't we? We can, we, can, we can lose a finger, but you're still yourself, even if you lose a part. God doesn't have parts. And if you were to take any of these attributes out, as I said, it, it wouldn't be God. But we can, we can lose body parts and still be ourselves communicable attributes. These are transferable in part to humans. Not that God does this in your lifetime, but transferable in the sense that he's designed his creation to have similar and analogical terms, attributes. But only in part. When we speak of God's attributes, they're, they're infinitely greater. That's probably not even mathematically correct to say infinitely greater, but uh, they're beyond comparison to ours. We love, but God has divine love. And the difference between that is huge. It's not like we're, we're a one when it comes to love and God is a 10, right? God is infinitely love and we are a one when it comes to measuring love that we exhibit. So are we chopping God in two here? Are we trying too hard to make two different categories? Because that's pretty much what everybody has done, right? They've made two different categories. Well, I don't think so. I think, again, this is just a way of studying God. You can learn about God and know your Bible well and even study theology without ever having known of communicable versus incommunicable. It's just a good way to study. It's a, it's a nice way to think about these attributes. It's a nice way to go through scripture and say, okay, here we're not at all like God. But for these over here, there's, there's some similarity and we can recognize that. Here's what the textbook says. Biblical doctrine, all classifications of God's perfections seem to divide God in two. Leaving no harmony between the perfections and thus no apparent unity. So the problem with all of these is we're, we're creating uh, dual categories here of God. This weakness can be overcome by seeing the first class of perfections, incommunicable, as qualifying the second class and vice versa. So these still interact together. It's not like we have this category and this category and there's no interaction. No, there is. And here's how they describe it. So that it can be said that God is one, absolute, unchangeable, and infinite. Those are the ones that are incommunicable. And he is all of those things. In his, now the communicable attributes, knowledge, wisdom, goodness, love, grace, mercy, righteousness, and holiness. That's what we'll see is all of these attributes modify one another. If we were to think of them in that sense. but So you have God's holy simplicity. And you have God's simple holiness. You can flip them around because they modify one another as we study them. Now they're they're. They're all one in God. So it's not like different attributes are modifying each other, literally speaking. So what are the incommunicable? Well, there's some we already named. Let's see if you can get them. It's quiz time. I don't have a book giveaway though, but I've already mentioned a few. Let's hear them. What is it? Omniscient? That's going to be communicable because we have omniscience, all knowledge, and we have some knowledge. But you're starting that list early for us. Incommunicable. Self-existent. Eternal. Aseity, which is self-existence. So we'll go back to two. Independence is another way to say that. Trinity. Trinity. Trinity is going to be a separate study, not traditionally studied here in the attributes of God. We'll come to that though. Others? These are the ones that are hard for us to get our minds around. These are the, usually the, the negation is in these words. Just like in communicable, In being the negation there. Immutable. God doesn't change. We change, though, don't we? Okay. What else, Haley? Simplicity. Simplicity? Omnipotence, Omnipotence going to be communicable. Love communicable because we have love. But you're getting all the attributes out. That's good. What else? Infinity. infinity. Yeah, I think it's already been or eternity. So, infinity and in time is eternity. Infinity, and in space is what? omnipresence. We're not omnipresent in any sense, but we are present. So a lot of omnipresence is one of those that sometimes goes back and forth depending on how you classify it. What was the question? uniqueness? Uniqueness. Yeah, not, he's unique in all of these, especially in that list. So that's not really an attribute, but that describes the whole list we're about to put up here under incommunicable. Because there's no one else like him in these. There's really no one else like him in all of these, but we can relate to the communicable ones. Holy, that's um, communicable because we're called to be holy. Immensity, Immensity, yeah. Immensity. What else? Okay, y'all did well. Aseity or independence. Usually self-existence is taught under this as well. God does not need or have anybody that brought him into being that causes him to exist. He is completely independent. Now, that sounds kind of obvious. But when you really think about this, God needs nothing. He doesn't need us. Have you ever heard? God was lonely and created mankind to have a relationship. Am I the only one that can admit to being in a church like that one day? God wanted to to show love. And so he created mankind. Well, now he did decree that he would create mankind and show mankind love. But when we're dealing with the Trinity, we'll see that there was already one God, three persons. And they had uh, an inter-Trinitarian relationship. So to say that God needed to create us is to say that God needed something else outside of himself. And he did not. So that helps us understand who God is. And then the fact that he did create is amazing because he didn't need to do it, but he did. And he didn't need to do all the things that have happened, but he did choose to do that and decree that. So the fact that you exist is an active choice that God made, not something that he needed. And there's so many other things that attach here to this uh, doctrine. Immutability, things that are mutable, change. Mutations and science. Mutation is, is something that changes And the DNA structure of the cell. Immutability here describes how God does not change. God is God. And God is God in eternity past. He's God right now. He's God in eternity future. And there's not any change happening in God. This one's hotly debated today. Very much pushed back against. We'll look at that when we go through these. Infinity. So you have infinity just means... He, he's, he can't be counted in these ways, and, and we're talking about time. So infinity in time is eternity, and infinity in space is immensity or omnipresence, omnipresence. Now again, sometimes we think, well, we're present, so that should be in the communicable attributes, but nowhere close to what we're talking about here when it comes to God's immensity. We'll look at these in detail as we go through them, or as much detail as as time allows in the few weeks we have. Simplicity. You can't divide God into parts. Not physical parts, not spiritual parts. Even his attributes, you can't think of them as parts. Omniscience. Omniscience. Yes, we have a type of knowledge. And again, some of these omnis people argue that they're more communicable in some sense. But we have knowledge, but it's in no way the same as God's knowledge. The omniscience that God has. Omnipotence. You could argue, yes, we have we have power. But nowhere like God's power. It's not even the same kind of power. And then perfection. Hopefully you're not thinking we have perfection. God is the one who's perfect. He is the one who's perfect in all these attributes, in all things. God is perfect. There is no... Darkness or shadow in him. He is pure light. All right, communicable. So these are the ones we typically think about. These are the ones that come up a lot in scripture. God is reminding us of who he is and what he's done for his people. The ones on the left, they're there in scripture, but they're not there often with these names. You're not going to find a verse in the Bible that speaks of aseity. You will find verses in the Bible that teach about the doctrine of aseity, what we call aseity which is Latin for independence. He does not need anything. Uh, You will not find the word immutability, but you will find the verses that say God does not change. He's not like a man that he would change his mind and so on. But when we come to the communicable, you will find verses that say God is holy. God is long-suffering. God is glorious. God is the most blessed God. You will see verses that speak of God's will, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. So that's why we're more familiar with the communicable. Even though, again, you'll find lots of verses on the incommunicable. We've just summarized them with different terms today. So let's go through the communicable attributes. Spirituality or invisibility. Wisdom. Truth. Goodness. Love, grace, mercy. I mean, I'm not going to explain these. I think, you know, most of these long suffering has to do with his patience. So this is how God is, is patient. And again, some people will, will take some of these and move them over to the other column, like spirituality, and say, well, God is, is spirit. And that's not really communicable because we're spirit and body and we're different spirit. But others will say, no, we have a spirit. That spirit once created is eternal. So there is some similarity there with God as spirit. That's why Jesus can say that God is spirit. We are to worship him in spirit and truth. Holiness. There's actually more than just morality when it comes to holiness. Also speaking here of God's complete separation in his being and his nature from humanity, but also in his righteousness, or or righteousness is another attribute, but holiness completely separate in his morality than we are. Righteousness is really justice, doing the right thing. We talk a lot in Romans, don't we, about righteousness as I've been preaching through it. How can we attain the righteousness of God? The just standard that God requires. Well, that's only found in Christ, through faith alone and Christ alone. But God is perfectly righteous. And then actually, when it comes to Romans, there's a big debate here. Because in Romans, Paul talks about receiving the righteousness of God. And some people don't like the idea that, that Jesus obeyed perfectly... In his humanity, in his ministry, in his life, he never broke the law, so he was righteous. And when he died on the cross for us, if we have faith in him, that righteousness gets applied to our account. Some people don't like that idea of the account transfer, the imputation. Some people who may seem rather Christian in many doctrines go against the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They say it's too much about works. Christ had to work for us instead of just die for us. So they say, when asked, where does righteousness come from? Well, it comes from God. Well, if God is simple and not made up of parts, how does he take a piece of himself, which doesn't work because he doesn't have pieces, and then give that to us when we have faith? Is it God taking some of his righteousness and spreading it around to his people? Or is it Christ's life and death on the cross being imputed to us? Well, the Bible says it's the second. It's the latter, right? It's Christ's righteousness through his life and his death, that gets now imputed to us. Not one of God's attributes. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that God, at the moment that you have faith, takes his attribute and sends it to you. Like a, That's actually pagan philosophy, where the God would emanate sparks out, the divine spark, and send it out to the people. And they would receive a divine spark. And that would change who they are. No, we're talking about an account in the New Testament of our sin. It's very clear in the New Testament. Our sin is on in the account. Christ's righteousness is on His account. And when we have faith, it goes like this. Our sin on Him, His righteousness on us. Not, speaking of the attribute here of God. Alright, jealousy. God is jealous or, or zealous for His name. He's not going to... Let someone else or some other false god or some mankind be more glorious than him. He has a jealousy for his name. It's hard for us to conceptualize that because we think often in our human terms of jealousy. God has a will. He has desire. God's blessedness. And we'll define in more detail what that is and look at those verses as we will all of these. And God's glory. So God has glory. Not just high and lifted up, majestic glory, but he literally radiates glory. So when Christ took on flesh, his glory was veiled. But there's times when people see his glory. I think the, the guys who come to arrest him, you know, and John, and they suddenly, they just fall down. When he says, here I am, it's me you're looking for. And they just, he says, I am, relating to the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. They just fall down and then they get right back up and arrest him. What's that all about? Now more clear is the Mount of Transfiguration and his clothes shine. And it was so bright for those three disciples to see. Or in Revelation, when John sees him and describes that there's this glorious radiating light coming off of him. That's God's glory. Okay, so the big question, we'll come back to this when it comes to simplicity. How do we relate these attributes to one another? Are there pieces of God, kind of, you know, like a Rubik's cube, and there's different shades of colors here? No, that's Not the right way to think about it. They are not parts of God. So his attributes are not parts of him. You can't take off a part and examine it. We examine the scriptures that speak of it, but it's not a part of God. God is fully each of his perfection. Again, hard for us because we're not fully any of these things. Even the communicable attributes, we're not fully love. We're not completely righteous now we're declared righteous in Christ as a believer but that's different than in your nature being righteous this is straight from the book but these are these are so good nice succinct explanations here god's perfections qualify each other so we've already looked at that right god's holy righteousness god's righteous holiness god's holy spirituality and so on so i'm not sure how we would do that in English grammar rules, but string all of those together, right? All the attributes and then put the one at the end. That's the, the noun and then all the others are adjectives. That would be fun. Not really. Okay. God's perfections are active, never passive. It's not like God turns off one of these at a certain time. They're not, God's not a God who sleeps. You know, the ancient people, when they came up with their God to worship and built their idols and so on, their God slept. You know, their God went to the bathroom. Their God ate food that they put out on the altars. Really, the priests ate it, but they thought of their gods as eating food. God is, is always active. He, that means he's always independent. He's always righteous. He's always holy. Now, there are times and places where God does not manifest that to his people. Where, where Jesus took on flesh and his glory was veiled, but he was still glorious. It was just not being manifested so that those people could see it. Uh, God is always these things and they're active. He's, he's pure, active essence and being and all these attributes. God's perfection should be studied together. So if you just take one and that's all we did in this class, that would be studying God in a lopsided way. And that's what happens today in the church. People take the attributes like love. They talk about it all the time, whether they're doing a class or maybe just studying the Bible. And they focus on that. And then they leave the other ones aside. So they began to think, well, that verse that says God is love, that's his main attribute. But if God doesn't have parts, does he have a main attribute? Does God have one main attribute? No. Because he's fully all of them. To have one main one would be, one would be, More full than the other? That doesn't even work. Also, when we see one mentioned more in Scripture, that's because God wants us to know that in that situation. And so love and righteousness are ones that are mentioned a lot in the Bible. Why? Well, it's not because those are somehow a a bigger part of him because God's not made of parts, but it is that God wants us to be reminded of his love as we're suffering under discipline, as we sin. You can think of God's, you know, aseity when you sin, and that can have implications. But when you think of God's grace when you sin, that's a a different heartwarming reminder than maybe God's aseity is. Although they all, again, are the qualifying one another. They are reflexive, reflexive. So God is the object. We cannot say, well, God has love because of us. He has to have love so that he can express it towards us. Love's not love unless it's expressed towards us. No, God is love. Before we were ever brought into existence, God was, is, and will be God. So, God is love and God existed before creation. He doesn't need creation to have the attribute of love. The ultimate object is himself. Glory, himself. Righteousness, himself. So, he is the, the ultimate object of all of these perfections. That's different than what you hear in Christianity today. Most Christians today would say, if they don't study the Bible and these doctrines, they would say, well, we're the ultimate reason that God has these attributes. They would think that in their minds. We're the reason that God has most of these attributes. It's not the case. God is the reason for God. God's essence is identical to his perfections. There's no essential distinction between God's essence and his perfections. There's no essential difference between God's perfections to one another. Each perfection characterizes God's complete essence simply and eternally. He does not merely possess love, justice, and goodness. It's not like he took something and added it to himself. He is love and justice eternally, fully, and completely. We're talking about God's nature, not adding something or dividing something from God. Dr. Mook in my TMS class, Frank as well, the scriptures never discuss God's being in the abstract, but always in connection with God's perfection. So we only know of these as they're expressed in the Bible, not some sort of abstract study like you do in calculus. R.C. Sproul, all of God is all of his attributes in his entirety. Every attribute we ascribe to God applies to the whole of God. What else is there that you know of God other than these things we're studying about God? The Trinity. Yeah, it's a separate study, but it still describes his nature. So, here's a couple. We'll finish with these from Grudem. On the left here is God being divided into parts. And uh, the note underneath here says, God's being is not a collection of attributes added together. So, that's parts on the left. To think of God as sort of all these attributes that came together and that's God. That's not right either. He's also not like the right either where you have God in the center and then all these attributes are kind of just outside of him and what we see, but they're not actually his nature. We can't really draw a diagram of the real way that it is because how do you do that? It's like the Trinity. How how do you draw a diagram of the Trinity? One God, three persons. Because the minute you start drawing lines to divide up the circle into three, it's not the Trinity. One God, three persons. Well, how do we define God in in a drawing here? We can't. People try to do it. And and there's some theological ways that the ancient church drew out how to understand the Trinity. But there's no actual representation that we could do here. The closest you could get is take a different color for every attribute. A different color marker. And draw the same circle over the top every time you picked up a different color. Right? That still doesn't work perfectly because in the end we have a different color than all the individual colors. And it would be some way parts. But... It's hard for us to understand this concept. We just have to believe it and know that God can't be divided up into these parts. All right, I'm a few minutes over. Next week, we'll start going through these attributes and looking at all of them. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. It's always a joy to study you, even when these concepts can be challenging to our minds. Help us as Christians to stretch our minds so that we can understand you. There's no way we can fully understand you But we do want to understand the verses, the scriptures that you've given us about yourself. So help us to glorify you more in our praise and our worship today because of this study. In the name of Christ, amen.